in the early 1790s, a disappointed English ambassador was returning to England from China, and he was carrying two edicts authored by the Chinese emperor and addressed to King George III of England, and the edicts read in part, quote, You, O king, have dispatched a mission respectfully bearing your memorial and paid respects at my court on the anniversary of my birthday. Your ambassador can see for himself we possess all things. I see no value on objects strange and ingenious and have no use for your country's manufactures. The distinction between Chinese and barbarian is most strict, and your ambassador's request that barbarians shall be given full liberty is utterly unreasonable. End quote. Welcome to my podcast, Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is Episode 9, Emperor Emeritus. If you're paying close attention to the quote I read at the very beginning of this episode, you would have heard the word barbarian, and that was not a mistake. The emperor of China was referring to the English and all non-Chinese Westerners in general as barbarians. And I chose this edict and that portion of it as a jumping in point to describe, I believe, the Chinese thinking and attitude to the outside world. And this thinking and attitude would come into play very shortly in the next century following the emperor I'm going to talk about, his reign. The Chinese see themselves as the middle of the world. And this is plainly expressed in the Mandarin character for China, Zhongguo, which literally means middle country. This jumping in point is a nice segue in the into the tumultuous 19th century, especially for the Chinese and this dynasty. I'll talk more about the edicts in the next episode. In the last episode, I cover Yongzhen and his short reign, and that he was sandwiched between the reigns of his father, Kangxi, which lasted over 60 years, and the reign of his son, the emperor I'm going to talk about now. Qianlong is the name of the emperor that I'm going to talk about now and the subject of the next two episodes. He also ruled for over 60 years. Of the nearly 270-year Qing dynasty, 
these three emperors, Kangxi, Yongzhen, and Qianlong, comprise half of the dynasty. When I come up with these episodes and develop these episodes, I, come, I try to put an episode title that I believe pithily describes and cleverly describes what's going on with that particular emperor and that particular time in China. And while I'm happy with the title I've put on this episode, it hardly does the emperor's history justice. Qianlong, the current current emperor I'm going to talk about, was an enigmatic man, an an enigmatic emperor. He seems to, to me to be in equal measure a good emperor and a bad emperor. To many, many Chinese, he is one of the Qing's greatest emperors. He's right up there in the discussions of great Qing emperors with his grandfather, Kangxi. To others, Qianlong is a scapegoat for many of the woes the Qing dynasty would incur in the next century. As I get into the next century and talk about it, you be the judge. Qianlong's reign would occur during some of the momentous events in modern world history. The Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, the American Revolution, and the French Revolution. Qilong would die the same year as George Washington. Qilong was born September 25, 1711 in Peking, China. He was the fourth son to the emperor Yongzhen. His given name was Hongli. Aishin Jilo Hongli. I will go by his more common and famous name, Qianlong, which is his official emperor name. For a short time in his life, he would vie for the crown prince with his older half-brother, Hongshu. Hongshu, however, was disgraced for supporting his uncle, Yunzi, his father's brother, who was a political rival of Hongshu's father. Nevertheless, Hongshu died in 1727, and that ended that. There's a famous story true or not, that when Qianlong was 12 years old, he was on a hunting trip with his father, Yongzhen, and his grandfather, Kangxi. A bear attacked Qianlong while he was riding his horse. Before an archer killed the bear, Qianlong displayed unusual bravery and impressed his grandfather, Kangxi. I believe I stated this in another episode, the one reason Kangxi chose Yongzhen as the emperor is so Yongzhen would choose Qianlong to be the emperor. It was alleged that Qianlong was tall, handsome, 
and athletic. He was educated from the finest in Han Chinese tutors at the time. He grew up to become a scholar. He had wide eclectic range of interest from martial arts to poetry to essays to music. And he was also a military strategist. He allegedly, over his lifetime, penned over 40,000 poems. He was an avid hunter and deeply religious. He ascended the throne on October 18, 1735, at the age of 24. And he, of course, became the Qianlong Emperor. In his lifetime, he would father over 25 children. His reign would last 60 years. And the Qing dynasty reached its zenith culturally, geographically, and economically during Qianlong's reign. He oversaw a prosperous period in China. Some of this was his responsibility, and some of it was from the cumulative effects from prior regimes. He had a rich treasury to play with. It allowed him to fund enormous and ambitious military campaigns. Under his reign, he pushed China out in all directions like a balloon allowing it to reclaim territory that previous Chinese dynasties had conquered. His palaces were stuffed with treasures and art pieces from all over the world. Many have argued that China, during his reign, was the wealthiest country on the planet. There were parts of China that rivaled the same standard of living as the richest parts of Europe. Qianlong spent enormous sums of money renovating, enlarging, and furnishing the many palaces. He favored one in particular, the Summer Palace outside Peking. He commissioned an Italian Jesuit, Giuseppe Castellone, to design and build an elaborate decorative water fountain on the property. Giuseppe Castelloni was a court painter for three Chinese emperors, Kangxi, Yongzhen, and Qianlong. He is most famous for fusing classic Chinese painting with European painting. He painted portraits of these emperors along with members of their family. Aside from the many military exploits that Qianlong was involved in and that I will mention later, perhaps the most extraordinary feat he ordered and oversaw during his reign was the assembling and completion of the Mandarin named Seku Chuanshu. It is an it is essentially an encyclopedia of Chinese culture and history. 
In the early 1770s, he ordered a review of all written works of the most important Chinese text in four primary areas, classic Chinese, Chinese history, Chinese philosophy, and Chinese poems, essays, dramas, and fiction. For over 10 years, an editorial board, if you will, consisting of over 350 scholars and editors, combed through material and made recommendations, sometimes with Qianlong's direct intervention. They employed over 3,800 scribes to produce this work in writing. When it was all done in 1782, seven sets of over 36,000 bound volumes were produced, each containing over 2 million pages. These were distributed all over China to libraries and palaces. The way Qianlong and the editorial board acquired the material that would be reviewed is equally impressive. The editorial board visited every library, both public and private, and gathered the text. When that proved to be insufficient, Qianlong then encouraged individual citizens to turn in their books or pamphlets, promising amnesty to anyone, having been deemed to be in possession of material judged immoral or seditious or critical of the Manjus. Qianlong also promised the materials would be returned. People complied. But the books and materials were never returned. The Siku Chuanshu is, of course, an enormous contribution by Qianlong to Chinese advancement and culture. They remain today a vast bibliography or library or encyclopedia of China. Sadly, I understand only four of the seven copies survive today. Equally as impressive as the production of the Siku Chuanshu was the production of the Siku Jinshu, its counterpart. Concomitantly with the production of the Siku Chuanshu, Xianlong ordered that any book or text be found to be anti-Manju or undesirable or unacceptable was to be destroyed by burning or editing in such a way that the repugnant text or material would be permanently destroyed. And here is a great example of the enigma of Qianlong. Qianlong giveth with the Siku Chuanshu, but Qianlong taketh with the Siku Jinshu. With the Siku Jinshu, he ordered book burning, and all that term or vision conjures up. The Siku Jinshu is estimated to have destroyed or banned some 2,800 books. Over 400 books were edited and censored. Some of the authors were even executed or punished. Ignoring the censorship problem for a minute, 
it has to be accepted that this was an awesome accomplishment. While population estimates vary widely, it is believed the Chinese population doubled during his reign. This would later, in the next century, overwhelm the Qing government from providing basic things. But that's a story for a later episode. Also, another great example of the enigma that was Qianlong and his alleged piety and his alleged enlightenment was that he kept the ban on Roman Catholic teaching in China. The ban, you will remember, was instituted by his grandfather, Kangxi, nearly a century before in the rights controversy. This is probably a good place to stop the episode. There is lots of important and foreboding stuff that remains to Qianlong's reign and what was going on in China. Qianlong's reign can be characterized as the high point of the Qing dynasty. But I don't want to give too much of the story away right now. Thank you. And it has been a pleasure.